Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. afternoon. This is George Spaulding, Vice President of Pink Elephant. Along with me today is Troy Dumoulin, the another Vice President of Pink Elephant, and Dean Meyer. Dean, what's your title? Well, I'm President of NDMA, my consulting practice and author of the book Internal Market Economics. See, I knew you were basically Dean Meyer's smart guy is what that is. <laughs> I'd go even further. Basically, I think Dean probably has the the best knowledge and depth in the area of financial management for IT services. So that's why I wanted him on the show today, George. Oh, that's scary by itself. By the way, Troy, what show are we on here? Practitioner radio number? 62. 62. Unbelievable. You know, Troy, I was on a webinar just the other day, like two days ago, and one of the questions at the end of the webinar was, hey, when are you doing your next practitioner radio? I said, Friday. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so, hey, Troy, let's see. It's February 27th, 2015. You and I and Dean were all just at Pink 15 enjoying beautiful weather in Las Vegas at the lovely Bellagio Hotel, resort and hotel, where it was not only warm enough to sit by the pool, but it was actually warm enough to get in the pool. Unbelievable. It was beautiful. I flew home to Minnesota where it is zero. Absolutely, totally freezing. So I'm waiting for spring now that I've seen it from afar. Okay, enough about me. So today's practitioner radio topic is how to get the money you need for IT. We had lots of other fancier titles, but in the end, that's really what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to turn it over to you now, Troy and Dean. Take it, guys. So that's a big question, right? The the reality of how do we actually gain IT funding, but that that has a lot more to it than that, though that's the simple question that we have to put on the table. So a lot of organizations today, in my experience, are struggling with a number of different business questions and uh I'll open that up to Dean. Dean, what do you see as the primary drivers that you're finding for the business problems that IT has to solve around IT finance? Thank you, Troy. Thank you, George. I'd say one of the most common is the feeling that our uh, customers out there in the business expect far more of IT than we have resources to deliver. Another common concern is this do more with less challenge, as if cutting our budget is going to magically make us more productive. I think we find ourselves struggling to defend our budget with little help from from the, our clients in the business, which is odd, you know, because if our budget's cut, who suffers? They do, because they get less IT. So you'd think they'd be right alongside us, but for some reason that's not happening. And on, on the positive side, I think we're all struggling to uh, to do the keep the lights on work, but perhaps to trim that part of the portfolio back a bit so that we can reprogram money to the more strategic opportunities in this era of digital business. So we'd like to be positive, but we're also being defensive. We're we're being accused of costing too much. Uh, We're getting into all kinds of political controversy over allocations or chargebacks. But on the positive side, we'd really like to make clients accountable for what they buy from us. And I say buy whether or not money changes hands. Accountable for aligning IT with their priorities 
And we'd like to engage in the right kind of dialogue with those clients about IT as an investment, not just as a cost. I'd like to build on that because I don't think we do ourselves any favors. Like the whole concept of rolling budgets where every year we get the same amount of money as long as we spend that and then we ask for a bit more without the ability to defend where that money flows. You know, Dean and I, you and I have talked about this a couple of times and I, and I believe in this basic economic principle that the investor, the person who is supplying the funds, in this case the business for the IT function, has to be able to map the investment they're putting in to the outcomes they're receiving. So concepts of general allocation, this big money pit called IT, let's you know put all the costs that have anything to do with anything called IT in this big bucket. At the end of the year, shake the big bucket up, throw it on the table, 10 million, 10 lines of business, one, you know, 1 million each, thank you very much. That doesn't do anything for increasing transparency. It certainly doesn't give me the ability to map the money going into the stuff I get out as far as services or outcomes. And there's only one potential economic condition. If the investor feels that the outcome they're getting back is less than the money they're putting in, there's only one possible scenario here, which is resentment. (laughs) I feel like I'm being ripped off. Exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, I think what what I find is that uh, that the customers and clients out there still really basically mistrust us. They really don't trust IT. And because of that, it becomes harder and harder to get money from them. And, and you know, guys, we, we completely bring this on ourselves. We induce this bad decision-making and mistrust. And a lot of it comes down to the way we go about submitting our budget. So just picture for a moment a spreadsheet where the columns represent your general ledger codes, you know, compensation, travel, training, vendor services, and so on. And the rows represent the services you intend to deliver in the year ahead. Okay, well and good. You fill in the matrix. And then what? The mistake that so many organizations make is they total the columns instead of the rows. So you're submitting a budget for compensation, travel, training, and vendor services. What do you expect top management to do with that, you know? Hey, George, I don't think you really need all that travel, do you? You're just begging for micromanagement. You're not going to the conference next year. Sorry, George. Yeah. So, okay, they're micromanaging you, but they're not making the decisions they ought to be making, like how much to spend on IT. What they should be doing is funding all the good investments and leaving behind the rest. They should be pouring enough money in here to keep the lights on and do all the strategic stuff and no more. But you can't judge ROI on compensation, travel, and training, can you? So what do they do instead? You know, last year, plus or minus a percentage, maybe a squeaky wheel project or two. But what does that say about fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, taxpayers, and donors? Bad process. Bad process. You said something very fundamental. Even for organizations which are kind of in the service management space, moving towards a service catalog and service portfolio, they're understanding what it means to define outcomes versus talking about resources. But those same organizations, Dean, that are developing these service-based models are not shifting their budgeting process. They're still budgeting based on uh, technical functions or domains or GL codes that you've just mentioned. So while they're developing services and talking value in respect to here's what I provide for the uh, services rendered, or excuse me, the money rendered, the reality is then their financial processes are still focused on this more resource-based budgeting as opposed to outcome-based budgeting. So we've made all these investments in service portfolio, we've defined our service offerings, and then we just ignore that when we do our budget? It's what's happening, actually. Crazy. Uh, And I would go on to say that even if we're not well down the path on, on the service portfolio, if we're facing these really pressing financial 
pressures and in the wrong kind of dialogue with the business, this is motivation enough for a CIO to develop the service portfolio and the, and the service offerings. It may be that these financial and demand management processes are the catalysts that really gets the CIO and the whole senior leadership team behind the service portfolio effort. So in your book, Kadeen, uh, which I'm a big fan of, by the way, Internal Market Economics, I'm going to put that in the show notes. Thank you, Troy. Yeah, no problem. I'm glad to. It's actually it's on my library, I'll tell you that. You talk about the concept of service-based budgeting or full-cost budgeting and the concept of full-cost recovery. In that model, you talk about integrating some key processes. Can you share the model with us? Certainly, Troy. I think there are four key ITIL processes that come together and add up to an effective budgeting and demand management process. And that is demand forecasting, service portfolio, service costing, and budgeting. These four are all really part uh, of the same thing in my mind. It's a planning process that we do once a year to um, ultimately to submit and negotiate the budget. And it starts with the service portfolio. Each year we define or refine our service offerings. Not that we can't do that continually through the year, but we need it for the budget and to set rates. So we reconsider that. Then we do the demand forecast. Demand forecast for what? Well, for those service offerings. So the service offerings flow right into the demand forecast. And then, of course, how can you do a budget if you don't know what you're planning to do in the year ahead? All of the planned spending should be triggered by that demand forecast. And then we feed that through a costing model. And what comes out the end is two things. One is rates, that is unit costs that are assigned back on the catalog. And the other is the budget. The budget not just for what we plan to spend, but for what we plan to sell. A budget for the rows as well as the columns. And that's what I mean by investment-based budgeting. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, one of the models that you actually talk about in the book I find quite interesting is you you look at every, and I'll call them a service owner. I know you and I debate on the term for this, but every service owner is in, in essence an entrepreneur for their line of service. And they're literally, once they've got their offerings defined, going out to the service consumers, the lines of business, and they're saying, okay, now, how much do you plan to buy? That's the sales forecast, the demand forecast that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's one element of understanding my budget because I now know how much I can actually sell or can expect to sell. But then there's other things that you talk about in the book, which are ventures, which are the projects, which are either business unit specific or ventures, which are for the good of all people, uh, corporate kind of ventures. Mm-hmm. How does that work between the money coming in from a direct business unit as well as the subsidy type uh, funding that you would actually get through more corporate funding models. Add another question to that, because what you just described, Troy, when we talk about the embedded business units and the solutions or ventures within those embedded business units, comes into a discussion of shadow IT where we not only don't see them, we don't see their money. And it, uh, in many ways, shadow IT uh, helps take money away from a shared services environment. So uh, I'd like to enter that into the, the mix here now. Mm. George, let me, let me talk to you about shadow IT for a moment. And then, Troy, let's come around to uh, how it works for service owners. I don't really like that term shadow ID because it sounds pejorative. I think decentralization is simply a sign that we in shared services have lost market share. Yep. That is, the business units would rather do it themselves than do business with us. 
even if doing it themselves, that is decentralization, increases costs for a lower quality of service and reduces enterprise-wide synergies. And it does all of that. Well, our job as shared services is not to scorn those people or politically try to take them over, but rather to earn that position of vendor of choice within the firm. Now, you know my biases. I'm one of the original proponents of running IT as a business within a business. So I think we have to be a competitive business. That means we've got to offer a rich, comprehensive, and up-to-date set of service offerings. We've got to be the best deal in town. We've got to deliver impeccably, and we've got to proactively build relationships and add value to business thinking and help discover those strategic opportunities. All of that adds up to vendor of choice. And then I trust that the market share will come our way voluntarily rather than through top-down mandate. So I love this, Dean. You're right. You're right. (laughs) As part of that, what I would say is, you know, let's not go out and try to claim some sort of control over their budget or their resources. They would see see that as an invasion and we become the enemy. So instead, leave it be. It is what it is. Let's just focus on what we have and do just a a world-class excellent job of managing our resources and relating to the business in a respectful business-like fashion. George, what do you think of that? I think it's a tough slope. I think it's a, that's an, I I agree with the basic premise. There's no question about it. And I've always talked about being vendor of choice and that that really is the solution in the end. But man, when you go out there and you see some of the, the embedded stuff and how entrenched it is and how entrenched it is and how long it's been that way, it's going to be a tough road to hoe. That's for sure. But I agree with the principle. I really do. I think money talks. If we are good at exactly what we're talking about here today, pricing out our service offerings and managing our services such that we are vendor of choice, then a rational business person, I know they're not all rational, but don't quote me on that, a rational business person would look at that and say, well, you know, I could buy it locally or I could buy it from shared service, which is the better deal. And over time, I think we'll attract that market share and we'll do so without disempowering those business units, because we still treat them as customers. I think one of the more common reasons for decentralization, even though it's more costly, is, well, you know, if they work for me, at least I can control their priorities. Exactly. So if we get our act together and price out our service offerings, both in total and the unit costs, as we're discussing here, and we treat these people as customers, not unruly children or victims then we take away that reason for decentralization. And indeed, those decentralized IT shops can look at us as an outsourcing vendor of choice, so even they don't lose power. So something important you've said, I think, is I want to highlight. The concept of shadow IT is a negative term that internal IT has placed on these business unit embedded IT groups, which, by the way, was the name for these groups until, until recently someone's coined the phrase. But that's kind of a derogatory term. Really, shadow IT, as you've just pointed out, is a symptom of IT losing market share because it's losing trust. And going back to that whole premise of negative reaction to not being able to map money into the investment coming out, unless an organization can actually move beyond defining your services, but also move to an understanding of service-based costing and also service-based budgeting, which is where we're going to go next, I cannot answer the question of how do I map investment to outcome and give a comparative analysis to retain and actually really recapture market share. You cannot engage in that kind of dialogue, the right kind of respectful customer-supplier dialogue with the business without this. You cannot be vendor of choice without this. 
And so, you know, throwing a pejorative term like shadow IT at them is really going to bounce right back at you. It's a sign that you're failing to earn the market share, not that they are bad people out there. So let's focus on how we become vendor of choice. A big part of that is offering our customers meaningful choices and explaining the true costs, uh, the full costs to the enterprise of their choices, and letting them choose what they buy from us. And all of that form of demand management, market-based demand management, is built on us understanding our service offerings and their costs. But it's built on. We start there. So where do we go next? Yes, we start there. This is the foundation. And then once we understand our service offerings and our costs, then we can construct the governance processes that explain to decision makers how much they've got in their checkbook. By that I mean the IT budget essentially pays for uh, a resource, a set of resources that are a checkbook that the business can spend on services. Think of the IT budget as prepaid revenues, money put on deposit with us to buy our products and services. So then it's up to the business to decide what checks to write. That kind of governance process that empowers them not just to rank order the major projects, but to really manage the portfolio of IT investments within the bounds of the IT budget. Again, that, that's predicated on knowing your service offerings and their costs, both unit cost and total cost. And that's why we have to start with those four processes. Service portfolio, demand forecasting, service costing, and budgeting. So, Dean, we know we have to start with the service costing, but how does all this work, actually, for the service owner? What are the tools in the service owner kit? Well, business within a business is not just IT as a whole. Every manager, every manager at every level within an IT organization is an entrepreneur running a little business within a business. Every manager at every level is a service owner with a catalog of service offerings that they sell to either clients in the business or peers within IT, or more typically a mixture of the two. So the right way to go about this is to engage the whole IT leadership team. Now, sure, the IT service manager can do this in the back room for them, maybe the first time through, but the real end game is to engage them all, all of those service owners, in a process, an annual business planning process, And it starts by ensuring that each of them has a service catalog, a set of service offerings that each of them owns and is accountable for delivering to customers within IT and outside. So the process begins by ensuring individual accountability for service offerings within each managerial group. And then it's up to each of those entrepreneurs, each of those IT managers, to forecast demand. And as you mentioned, Troy, demand comes from a variety of sources. It may come from client requests, either for ongoing services, perhaps with some volume changes, or from new projects. It may come from ideas we'd like to put on the table for consideration by the clients, new projects, for example. Mm -hmm. But also, there are things we do for the good of the enterprise. I think you mentioned this just a moment ago, Troy. Things uh, like policy and security that we do for the good of the whole. It's like a sale to the board instead of a sale to individual clients. So we would put those in our demand forecast. And then there are things we need to do for ourselves. For example, infrastructure refresh, infrastructure expansions, funding for ITIL implementations, and for Pink Elephant Consulting and that sort of thing. All of those are funding requirements that are in themselves projects, but for our benefit, that's what I mean by ventures. They're like loans from the bank. So all of those go in as rows in that spreadsheet. That is, all of those are the demand forecast. And note that we're forecasting demand for the service offerings 
within each service owner's group. So some of those rows, those sales, those demand items, may be sales to peers and some may be sales to the business. So at this stage, we also put together primes and subs. Who's the prime contractor selling to the client for an externally facing service? And what does that prime contractor need to buy from subcontractors within IT, perhaps the technical services that add up to the business service? Let me pause you there, Dean, and give an example. So, so I'm the ERP uh, services owner, and I'm supporting you know, IT business finance. And so I've got e- ERP and financial services. Maybe I'm using a, a system like SAP, Oracle Financials. But before I put my ERP services together... I've got to go talk to George over there. He owns storage and uh, he owns network. And so we've got, I basically, George is going to look to me for my demand forecast for this business facing service. So I'm going to ask George for services around, I need some servers, George. I need some data space on the, in the, you know, in the SAN. And I need, I don't know, George monitoring. And so George, you're talking to me about my demand as you're, because I'm the prime to the business and you're my sub, but I get that relationship going first, figure out my service offering, which I then take back to the business. I think that's what you mean by prime and sub, where I'm the prime to the business unit, George is subbing on the enabling or supporting services. That's exactly what I mean. So you okay. are, you have some, uh, in your demand forecast, Troy, you have some sales to the business. George, you have some subcontract sales that'll be linked to Troy's sale to the business, but you have other customers as well. So your demand forecast is going to many different customers, in some cases directly to clients. Maybe those decentralized IT groups are buying directly from you and they're doing their applications hosting. So every entrepreneur has multiple customers and hence uh, lots of rows in that demand forecast. But they're all linked together so that we can put together um, end-to-end services to the business. And I'd also point out, Troy, that you may also be hosting our service management system where your customer is the service desk. So you may have hosting of ERP for the clients, hosting of service management for an internal customer. And that's going to be a cost that the service desk spreads into its rates for application support. So each entrepreneur has a variety of customers. That's a good thing. So this whole business ecosystem internal to the business itself is what you're referring to as internal market economics, the business of doing business inside the business before you do business outside to the end market. Well, we need to understand all these internal customer-supplier relationships and prime-sub relationships in order to get costs in the right place and also in order to build up the services. But um, we also need to ensure that everybody is an entrepreneur facing a marketplace. And so that's exactly what I mean by internal market economics. Let's make every one of our managers an empowered and creative entrepreneur funded for what they sell to their customers, internal and external, and at the same time, link it all back together. At the foundation of this also, what I'm getting is something I've talked about for a long time, which is the fact that we convert our IT group into a service provider organization, which is pretty straightforward and provides services to the customer, but then back that up a little bit and start providing services to internal, other internal IT groups, even within whether they're different groups like the embedded IT groups who may want application hosting and things like that, or or the ability to define what we do even internally as a service is something that I don't think IT really excels 
as that. I'm with you, George. I, I really strongly feel that there are no such thing as second-class citizens in IT. If you as a manager find that your customers are within IT rather than clients, that doesn't make you any less of an entrepreneur. And it doesn't make you any less accountable for being clear about your service offerings. Take the ITSM group itself. Its customers are primarily within IT to help improve processes throughout IT. And yet it's strategic and critical, and they should be as entrepreneurial as everybody else, putting good ideas on the table and hoping for the best when it comes to funding them. So how the money flows, let's, I like this concept. So the, the business itself sells products and goods and services to the end market. That generates revenue for the business ecosystem. The business unit then is flowing money to multiple internal service organizations. IT is one of many. You could also talk about HR, internal IT finance, facilities, fleet management, those types of, those are also selling goods and services. The money is flowing from, you know, end market consumer to the supporting internal entrepreneurs, which again are flowing money to their enabling entrepreneurs, which they're buying services from. So this flow of money is all through this service stack. I think you like to call it the wedding cake, Dean, because there's multiple levels to it. Mm -hmm. uh, at the highest level, you know, the profits are generated out in the business units. In, in many cases, those profits are remitted to the enterprise as a whole, and IT gets its budget from above, that is direct budget, no chargebacks. There are other cases where the business units use their money to buy directly from IT, that is fee-for-service, you buy, you pay, you don't buy, you don't, you don't pay. And in between is this notion of allocations. An allocation is some high-level formula, number of devices, number of people, number of transactions, high-level formula that causes the business units to transfer money to us for a whole bundle of different service offerings. But it really doesn't matter whether you get your revenues from above, direct budget, from allocations, or from fee-for-service, Revenues are revenues. You get, nobody gives you money to pay your costs. You get money to buy your products and services. And in that paradigm, this is the business within a business paradigm, as money flows to you, we would treat the direct budget and the allocation as prepaid revenues. They form a checkbook that doesn't belong to you. It's money put on deposit by the business to buy your stuff. So the business gets to decide exactly what checks to write out of that checkbook. Think about the escrow on your mortgage account that's there to pay your property tax and your insurance. It's money you've put on deposit, and then it's used to pay the bills when you have to pay for your property tax and insurance. So when you think of budget that way, then governance becomes a matter of helping the business decide what checks to write out of those prepaid revenues. I think the, the bottom line here, Troy, is that it does not require chargebacks. You can have all of the benefits of market economics without actual fee-for-service chargebacks or money transfers. But again, you can't even begin to set up that kind of client business-driven governance process if you don't know your service offerings and your costs. So the starting place is in the annual demand forecasting and service costing process. So I want to give one example for that so people can clearly see that in their, in their minds as they listen to this podcast. So I uh, work with one organization and they have a business-as-usual service. In that effort, basically, we're talking about all the services that they currently consume, the business consumes, that is. And if they want minor enhancements, which don't qualify as major projects, right, and there's a financial threshold in that question, 
they put so much money, let's call it 10 million. It's just an arbitrary number I came up with on deposit on account. And as these minor enhancements are requested, new reports being generated, there is a consumption down, a burn down on that money on account. But so you, you also have to be then looking at your consumption based on that money account so that when it gets to zero, it's simply, okay, you'd like to write another check. Well, then fair enough. Can you put some more money on account, please? So I'm not in a position where I'm now in a situation where I'm no longer able to fund this business as usual work. You're right. There are two basic subsystems to internal market economics. One is planning once a year, uh, and the other is tracking all year long the actual utilization. So in the planning process, that's where we do the refinement of the service portfolio and publish the service offerings for the year with rates and the investment-based budgeting. Once that's done, we initialize those checkbooks. We know how much budget we got and and set up the governance process the business decides what they want to buy with their finite resources. So note that supply and demand are in balance. We've managed expectations. We're not expected to do more with less. Clients certainly have a, an incentive to defend the IT budget since it's going to be their money and determine what they can afford from us. And they have an incentive to, yeah, keep the lights on, but maybe turn some lights off to free up money for the stuff they really want, the strategic investments. So they are automatically aligning IT with strategy. Everything's falling into place, and we're now dialoguing at the right level. IT is an investment, not a cost. Then during the year, as we actually deliver stuff, we would invoice for it. Now, if you do chargebacks, those invoices actually transfer money. But, Troy, as you just said, if you're getting direct budget and we treat it as prepaid revenues, those invoices decrement the checkbook so they know how much is left for the rest of the year. So on the actual side, the tracking side, is the governance process, including checkbook management, and then commitment tracking and delivery, and then utilization tracking and invoicing. And that creates the cycle that decrements the checkbook so that the governance process can continue throughout the year. I think it's important to understand the big picture It's equally important to understand that you can't get the actual side, the governance and the invoicing working right, if you haven't done a good job on the planning. So again, the place to start is the annual planning process, and then we get into the governance and the invoicing machine. So Dean, our time is up, and uh, so what I'm hoping is you can give us one final piece of advice uh, that we can leave folks with. Well, I... I'd be awfully self-serving if I said the best advice is to read the book, Internal Market Economics. Go ahead, read the book. (laughs) I say that with a smile. I was going to ask you what the title of your book was, Dean, so that we could push that, but I see you've worked that in. Okay. I beat you to it, man. (laughs) Um, I I also want to emphasize that I'd be delighted to um, have a personal private conversation with CIOs or their direct reports who are interested in pursuing this area, and there's a rich library of resources on the web at fullcost.com. But I think the most important thing to leave you with is this. Start with the planning process, then get into the actuals. Don't go spending a lot of money on showbacks and and utilization statistics and time cards before people know why it's worth filling them out. The far higher payoff and lower cost investment is a planning process that integrates those four critical ITIL processes, that is, service portfolio, demand forecasting, service costing, and budgeting, in in an integrated process, engaging your leadership team, that's where the real action is. That's the first step. All right. 
Well, that'll have to do it for today. Thank you very much, Dean Meyer and Troy de Milan. This was Practitioner Radio 62, and we'll look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you, Troy. Bye-bye.